following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. As I've been doing with each of these messages, I want to show you the chapters that I'll be focusing on for this message. And so for this week's message, uh, we'll be looking at chapters 4, uh, chapters 5, chapters 8 and 9, and then 19 and 21 from the uh, uh, Gentle and Lowly book. Okay? Um, as I've been saying with each message, too, in this Advent series, uh, this book is unique in that it focuses not on the work of Jesus as much as it does on his heart for us. And as I've been also saying each week, um, why is that important to know God's heart for us? Well, as I said, I think it's because the truth is some of our deepest insecurities in our relationship with God revolve around how we imagine God feels toward us, especially when we are suffering or when we're struggling with sin. Paul says in his letter to the Romans in chapter 5, verse 6 to 10, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if we, for if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Do you follow the Apostle Paul's logic here? Because it's important. Because Paul is saying, Jesus died for us when we were lost and dead in our sin, when we were in total rebellion and opposition to God. And what he's saying is, if God was willing to do this for us while we were his enemies, how much more confidence can we have in him, in his love and his commitment for us, when we become his followers and are saved by his blood? The reason why this is so important is because the truth is our logic actually leads us to the exact opposite conclusion, doesn't it? And it kind of goes like this. God may have been willing to offer his grace to me when I sinned in ignorance as an unbeliever. But why would God show me mercy when I sin against him after knowing that he saved me as a Christian? That's a lot harder for us to believe, isn't it? In addressing this struggle, Ortland writes, if one it's one thing to believe that God has put away and forgiven all of our old failures that occurred before new birth. That is a wonder of mercy, unspeakably rich. But those were, after all, sins committed while we were still in the dark. It's another thing to believe that God continues just as freely to put away all our present failures that occur after new birth. Perhaps as believers today, we know God loves us. We really believe that. But if we were to more closely examine how we actually relate to the Father moment by moment, many of us tend to believe it is a love infected with disappointment. He loves us, but it's a flustered love. 
How are they still falling short so much? After all I have done for them, we picture him wondering. We are now sinning, quote, against light, the Puritans would say. We know the truth, and our hearts have been fundamentally transformed, and still we fall. And the shoulders of our soul remain drooped in the presence of God. Once again, it is a result of projecting our own capacities to love onto God. We do not know his truest heart. And so as uh, he's laying out here, it's, it's one thing to sin in ignorance. But to quote, sin against light, what excuse can we possibly have before God for that kind of failure? But Paul, in his letter to the Romans, reassures us that even after becoming a Christian, his commitment to help us in our struggles and our weaknesses, and yes, even in our sin failures, grows even stronger than the love that saved us when we were lost. That's an amazing truth, isn't it? Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1 through 5 says, Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, you are my son. Today I have become your father. What the writer of Hebrews is referencing here is that once a day, on this day of atonement, the high priest would offer a sacrifice of a goat for the sins of the entire nation of Israel. But before he could do this, in Leviticus, he was commanded to first sacrifice a bull for his own sins. And that was a powerful message to the high priest, that you are no different than them. Even though you mediate on behalf of this nation, you are a fallen sinner just like them. And before you can come into my presence, you too must have your sins cleansed. And we get that from a human standpoint, but what doesn't make sense is that the writer of Hebrews makes that parallel with Jesus. And though Jesus was sinless, what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that by becoming a man, he entered into that identification with his people. And what he is saying is that Jesus firsthand experienced weakness that we experience. Yes, he did not sin, but he experienced how hard it is not to sin. What an incredible battle against temptation is required to resist that. And so what he's saying is that like these high priests in the Old Testament, Jesus too can identify with our sin struggle. And because of that, he can deal gently with us when we fail. There is an incredible compassion and empathy that comes from the heart of Jesus because he knows what it is like to struggle with weakness. I think when we think of Jesus being tempted, our immediate instinct is to go to the wilderness when for 40 days he was tempted by the devil while he was fasting. But what the Bible actually tells us is that as a human, Jesus experienced an entire lifetime of what it feels like to struggle in weakness. The NIV says that Jesus was subjected to weakness, 
The word that is actually literally used there describes a situation when somebody is completely confronted and surrounded on all sides by something. It's a very graphic word that is being used here. And so the picture is of someone that is completely closed in on all sides. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that's how Jesus experienced weakness in his life. It was as if he was closed in on all sides by the weakness of his own flesh, like we experience. In other words, Jesus personally experienced every aspect of human weakness. When you feel like you don't have the strength or motivation to go on and keep fighting. When the temptation is so great that you just don't think you could resist anymore. When you don't feel like trying anymore and you just want to give in to your worst instincts. When you want to give up on people and just cut them out of your life. When you wake up and you're not sure that you have a good enough reason to get out of bed that morning. These are all expressions of human weakness. And what the Bible amazingly tells us is that Jesus experienced the full force of all of that. And as a result of that, there is this incredible identification that he has with our weakness. Because he personally, in a very felt way, knows what that feels like. And as a result, he deals gently when it comes to our struggles. The description of the, quote, ignorant and the wayward is likely referring to the different degrees to which we can all fall into sin. Because sometimes we do sin out of ignorance because we just simply don't know better. But the truth is sometimes we also sin deliberately, don't we? Intentionally. What the Bible would describe as sinning with a high hand as if we're basically sticking up our middle finger at God and saying, I don't really care. And it says, regardless of the severity of the sin, the writer of Hebrews says, in all sin, God deals gently with the sinner because he understands what it is like to live in weakness. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 to 15 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In a very real way, Jesus can sympathize with us because he has personally experienced the struggles that we go through when we try to resist temptation and sin. I think we can all say this. When we're struggling through a hard time, I don't think any of us are comforted when somebody shows pity on us. Are any of you comforted by pity? I'm not. In fact, when I receive pity, it actually makes me feel more isolated and alone in my struggle. Because I realize the person that's throwing pity my way can't understand what I'm really going through. It feels like condescension more often than not. And what I've come to realize about myself, too, is there's definitely areas of my life where I struggle to show empathy to people. And it's, coincidentally, areas where I tend to find my strengths. Um, let me just give you one example. <laughs> I have a really hard time 
when somebody can't grasp a concept or an idea very quickly, or when I detect inconsistencies in their logic or their reasoning, okay? It's why I don't think I would have made a very good teacher, right? It's why it's good I didn't go into teaching. Um, some of you could say, but as a pastor, aren't you a teacher? I guess so. <laughs> and I don't know what to say about that, okay? Um, back in the day when we were living in Africa and we were homeschooling our kids, as some of the kids got older and uh, got into more advanced math and science, I had to do some of the tutoring for them. And I was saddened by how impatient I became with my kids when they didn't catch on right away to the things that I was trying to explain. Why is this so hard? Why, why don't you get this simple concept? You know, look at the diagram. Look at the vectors for this electromagnetic field. It's not that hard. Uh, <laughs> I'll just stop there because it gets really ugly. Um, because I don't struggle with that. I didn't react with gentleness or with understanding. On the other hand, there are some other areas where I realized I did have a lot of empathy for the kids. Um, our kids, when we came back from Africa to America, uh, all attended a Christian private school during grade school and junior high, but then they all transitioned to a public high school. And I don't know why I became so obsessed with this particular issue, but in the first week of school, every time they came home from school, the only thing I wanted to know about was the lunch period. And I said, uh, uh, were you able to find a table to sit down with? And uh, how did that go? Uh, did you make any friends? Uh, did they accept you? Was it awkward? And I asked them this every single day to the point where I think they became really self-conscious. And I realized that I was obsessing over this issue and peppering them with questions about the lunchtime because I remembered when I started high school that that was one of the most traumatic experiences for me was holding this cafeteria lunch tray and staring at this crowded cafeteria and having no idea who to sit with and just kind of wandering uncomfortably and awkwardly. And the truth is, because they had gone to a private Christian school and didn't know any other kid at the school, they all struggled for the few, first few days to try to figure out who to sit with. And it almost gave me an ulcer. <laughs> I was like coaching them like, you know, this is how you find the table that you just sit at. It. And they were all like, Dad, I got it. I'll be okay, you know. Um, and eventually, thankfully, they did all find a friend group to sit with and all my fears were alleviated. But I realized that all of that came from this heart of empathy because I understood what that was like, because I understood what I went through as a high school student. Another experience of identification happened to me uh, when I had surgery for uh, ACL reconstruction from a basketball injury back when I was a resident in, uh, in a hospital. And as a doctor working in a hospital, that hospital basically became like a second home to me because I had spent so much time there. But suddenly seeing everything that was so familiar to me as a doctor from the vantage point of a patient 
was an unbelievably eye-opening experience. And I've shared this actually before some years ago. But just being forced to wear that ridiculous hospital robe, you know, with your butt exposed, and seeing the every department on your back wheeled around in this gurney where you can't even see where you're headed, uh, it created an unbelievable amount of anxiety in me. I felt so helpless, and I felt so powerless. And on, in all honesty, I was actually really afraid. And the truth is, as a doctor, I never thought twice when I put an IV in a patient. But when it suddenly became my arm, I was terrified, you know? Um, and I prayed to God that the nurse that I got was a good one because I've seen some bad nurses. And nurses in training botch IVs and watch them try three, four, five times on these poor patients trying to start a line. And there were these discoveries that I have never realized as a doctor was that when that IV fluid is going through your arms, it actually feels like cold ice water running through your veins. You can actually feel the coldness seeping into your arms. And I never once felt cold when I was seeing patients in the pre-op prep area of the hospital. But lying there on that bed as a patient, I began to shiver and say, why is it so cold in this room? And I was so grateful when a nurse noticed me shivering and brought a warm blanket to me and covered me. And all the waiting, you know, why does everything take so long at a hospital? All the nervous waiting. Can't we just get over with this already? And so I was so thankful when after laying on this bed for like an hour, a nurse finally came to me and explained to me what was going on and when I could expect to be wheeled into the OR for my surgery. That experience profoundly changed me as a doctor. I, I want to think I became a more compassionate and understanding doctor after going through the experience as a patient myself. And I think that's what the writer of Hebrews is trying to tell us about Christ's heart for us. I think it's hard to imagine that Jesus would have much empathy or understanding with us when it comes to our sin struggles. Because the truth is, we all know it, he never sinned. And we imagine that maybe he is staring at us with judgmental eyes, disappointed, or maybe shaking his head at us with contempt. Why can't you figure this out? Why can't you be better? But that couldn't be further from the truth. When Jesus sees us in our sin and our weakness, what the Bible tells us is that the exact opposite happens in his heart. His heart goes out to us because he knows how intense our struggle is, even though he never sinned. In fact, Jesus may understand how hard that fight is to resist temptation even more than we do because he never gave in to that temptation. And let's be honest here. A huge part of finding relief from temptation is giving in to the temptation, right? That's a very easy way to resolve that struggle. But imagine if you never gave in your entire life to a temptation. How unbelievably painful that would be to remain pure like that. 
Richard Phillips, in his commentary in Hebrews, writes, Jesus knows far more about temptation than we do because he endured far beyond the point where the strongest of us gives in to the trial. B.F. Westcott is surely right where, when he observes sympathy with the sinner in his trial does not depend on the experience of sin, but on the experience of the strength of the temptation to sin, which only the sinless can know in its full intensity. He who falls yields before the last strain. And so it is in that understanding and empathy we're told that Jesus then deals gently when it comes to our sin. When we come to him in our failure and our fallenness, he says, I know what that struggle is like. I know experientially what you're going through. Jesus' sympathy for our struggles, though, goes beyond just simply a heart of understanding. What the Bible tells us is that he also intercedes on our behalf. Hebrews 7, verse 25, Therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. In other words, what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that his ministry on our behalf didn't end when he died on a cross. But he is now presently at work to complete that saving work in our life by this ministry of intercession for us. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 to 2 says, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. An advocate is someone who stands in solidarity with you, who declares, I am on your side, I will defend you when there is a, a conflict or when there is a struggle. And so rather than condemning us when we fail or when we sin, as hard as it is for us to believe, the Bible says Jesus does the exact opposite. He ends up defending us as if he were our own personal lawyer. And his argument, as it says in John, isn't based on our faithfulness. But as John points out, it is solely on the basis of what he did for us on the cross. That is the appeal that Jesus makes to the Father. In Romans chapter 8, verse 34, it says, Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Toward the end of his gospel, Luke records this interaction between Jesus and Peter. In Luke chapter 22, verse 31 to 32, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. It's strange to think about Jesus as having a prayer ministry, isn't it? But that's exactly what he is doing for us right now. It is on the basis of that intercessory prayer that Jesus is offering for his own disciples that he has this confidence that Peter and the rest of them will not fail, but that they will overcome the testing that they're going to be placed under. And I think that is the picture of Jesus that the Bible is inviting us to have every time we fail. It's not of a God resentfully crossing his arms and staring at us in disappointment. 
but it is the picture of a Savior who has now become our advocate, interceding in prayer on our behalf before the Father. I think so often our focus is on our own lack of a prayer life and all of that is missing in our life because of anemic prayer. But I think what the Bible is inviting us to do is think more about the prayer life of Christ himself who unceasingly is praying for you every single moment so that through his prayers, the work he has begun in you will be seen through to the end when he completes it. Ortland reflects on how differently we might live our lives if we truly understood this truth that Jesus is our advocate. What kind of Christian does this doctrine create? Fallen humans are natural self-advocates. It flows out of us, self-exonerating, self-defending. We do not need to teach young children to make excuses when they are caught misbehaving. There is a natural built-in mechanism that immediately kicks into gear to explain why it wasn't really their fault. Our fallen hearts intuitively manufacture reasons that our case is not really that bad. The fall is manifested not only in our sinning, but in our response to our sinning. We minimize, we excuse, we explain away. In short, we speak even if only in our hearts, in our defense. We advocate for ourselves. What if we never needed to advocate for ourselves because another had undertaken to do so? What if that advocate knew exhaustively just how fallen we are, and yet at the same time was able to make a better defense for us than we ever could? No blame shifting or excuses the way our self-advocacies tend to operate, but perfectly just pointing to his all-sufficient sacrifice and sufferings on the cross in our place. We would be free, free of the need to defend ourselves, to bolster our sense of worth through self-contribution, to quietly parade before others our virtues in painful subconscious awareness of our inferiorities and weaknesses. We can leave our case to be made by Christ, the only righteous one. Wouldn't that be awesome to see more Christians live their life like this? I don't need to try to justify my worth or to defend myself. Because I have an advocate in Jesus Christ who stands at my defense before the Father. And because of that, I can be utterly transparent in my struggles. And I can share freely my fallenness and my weaknesses before God and before others. Because Christ is the one who intercedes for me. Let me actually just close. I've been... I've been trying to preach shorter, okay? And so I'm going to actually close with just the story here, and we'll wrap up the message. Karen Blixen is one of my favorite authors. Uh, She went by a number of different pen names, sadly, because women often couldn't be published back in that day. And so they had to assume male author names to be published. And so she chose the pen name of Isaac Dennison. Um, Her most famous book is Out of Africa, and there was an Academy Award-winning movie made uh, from that book, which recounted her years living in uh, Kenya during British colonial rule. 
But she also wrote a short story titled Babette's Feast. I don't know if any of you have actually read that. But it's about a pastor in a small Norwegian village who had two daughters. And for this pastor, everything about the Christian life was duty and obedience and sacrifice. And in his austere understanding of the faith, no worldly pleasures were ever to be enjoyed. And everyone in the church wore black. And they survived on a simple diet of a soup made from fish and bread and water. And if you watch the movie, it's the grossest thing. <laughs> um, and when they were younger, his two daughters were actually very beautiful. And so many men came to the village courting them. But as their father, he rejected every one of their proposals because he wanted his daughters to serve the church exclusively. The pastor eventually died, and his daughters grew old. And they remained single for the rest of their life, serving the church that their father had planted. But one day, a French maid named Babette shows up at their door, sent by a longtime friend from France. And the daughters tell this maid, I'm sorry, this has been a horrible mistake. There's no way we can afford your services as a maid. And so Babette offers to work for the daughters for free. And she ends up working for them for 14 years. And after 14 years, the daughters decide to celebrate what would have been their father's 100th birthday if he had not passed away, and to have a modest dinner with the church members of the church. And by then, this church had dwindled to just a dozen members, and they're all elderly. And the truth is, um, it's not a spiritually healthy church. There's a lot of backbiting and fighting. There's a lot of gossiping. There's a lot of decay into sin. And the sisters urge these church members to do better. But nothing really changes. Around that time, Babette actually receives a telegram that says that she has won the lottery in France and has been awarded 10,000 francs, which in that time was an enormous son of money. And the sisters look utterly disheartened when they hear this news because they realize it'll probably just be a matter of time before Babette leaves them to return to France with her fortune. And maybe this is her parting gift to them, but Babette makes an interesting request. And she says, what I want to do is I want to cook for you a special French dinner for your father's 100th birthday celebration. And I not only want to cook it for you, but I want to pay for it. And at first, the sisters totally object and say, no way, we can't let you do that. But eventually, they give in to her persistence and say yes. And eventually, all of this exotic food, like turtles and quails and stuff, begin to show up on the shore from France. 
And rather than being excited about this, the sisters have this interesting reaction of being horrified by it with fear and regret that they ever let Babette cook this dinner for them. And they communicate their fear to the church members and say, we think something has gone horribly wrong with our father's celebration. And Babette is now preparing this crazy meal for all of us. And they basically say, I think what we've done is invited her to turn our father's birthday into what they call, quote, a witch's Sabbath, okay? And so in solidarity with the sisters, all of them agree, when we come to this dinner, listen, we're all going to shut our mouths and eat the food, and we're not going to say a single word about this meal that we're served. When the night of the dinner comes, a man who years earlier had courted one of the sisters has now become a, a very powerful general in the army and decides to join them for this dinner. And as the dinner begins, all the guests silently and nervously eat the dishes that are placed in front of them. None of them has any experience of fine dining. And so they have no idea what they're eating. Only the general, who has dined in the finest restaurants in France, becomes stunned by the quality of the food that's coming out of the kitchen. And he can't stop raving about it. And although to the end of the meal, the church members honor their oath and say nothing about the food, the extravagant dinner eventually ends up softening their hearts. And by the end of the meal, some of them are sharing testimonies of their youth when they were more devoted to God. And others are beginning to quote Bible verses and sayings that the pastor used to say. And some of them are recounting miracles that they had witnessed together when they were younger. Sins are confessed and sins are forgiven. Blessings are offered to one another. And you know that general that came to the dinner that night came haunted with questions and regrets about the choices that he had made in his life. But by the end of that meal, the general has become a different man. And he offers a speech at the conclusion of the meal and says this, in our human foolishness and short-sightedness, we imagine divine grace to be finite. For this reason, we tremble. We tremble before making our choice in life and after having made it, again tremble in fear of having chosen wrong. But the moment comes when our eyes are opened and we see and realize that grace is infinite. Grace, my friends, demands nothing from us but that we shall wait it, await it with confidence and acknowledge it in gratitude. You see, aside from Babette herself, this general is the only one who really understands the incredible gift that had been given to those guests through that lavish dinner that was served. He alone among the guests understood what an act of grace was given to these humble villagers who had no idea the meal that they were eating. After the guests leave, 
Babette reveals to the sisters that she was actually once the head chef of Café Anglais, the most famous restaurant in Paris, and that she had basically spent the entire lottery winning of 10,000 francs on this extravagant meal. And because of that lavish feast she prepared for those guests, she had now once again become utterly destitute and poor and had no plan to return to Paris, but promised to continue to serve these sisters. And when I read the story and watched the movie, um, listen, it's true that this meal softened the hearts of these villagers, these church members. But the truth is, especially when I watched the movie, I wanted a more dramatic response to the meal itself. Maybe it's because I, I consider myself somewhat of a foodie, but I wanted some sign that, of appreciation that they understood what an incredible dishes that they were being served. But if you watch the movie, because after all, this was an unbelievable act of generosity and sacrifice that Babette sacrificed her entire fortune on this one meal. But other than the general, they all look like they're just eating the food more out of courtesy than out of actual enjoyment. And it's painful to watch this if you watch the movie. And I wasn't sure if it was just the muted tone of Danish theater or what, you know. But it really bothered me. It just felt so anticlimactic. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized that's exactly how it should have happened. Because the truth is, that's how grace operates, isn't it? The pain of watching Babette's Feast is that you can't help but feel that this incredibly costly gift was given to people that didn't really appreciate it or deserve it. They didn't seem to understand what was being given to them. A bunch of uncultured rural villagers choking down an extravagant dinner worthy of the finest restaurant in Paris and at a cost of everything by this woman who gave up everything to prepare this food. And I think that's the message of the gospel, isn't it? Even, I hope you're discovering that as you're reading this gentle and lowly book and hearing these messages of how much lavish grace God pours on us and yet how utterly clueless and resistant our hearts are to believe it. It's a story that's just too good to be true. So we don't believe it. And we continue to live in the unbelief of a resistant heart. Like these villagers who don't know the feast that is being set before them. That's always the risk of grace, isn't it? It's often given to people who don't understand and definitely don't deserve it. If you get to the end of Ortland's book, in his epilogue, he has what I found to be this very arresting conclusion to his book because he, I think, sort of answers the question that's pressing on everyone is, what's the whole point of this book? What do you do with it? 
And this is what he says at the conclusion. You can go ahead and show the slide there. What now? This is a book about the heart of Christ and of God. But what are we to do with this? The main answer is nothing. To ask, quote, now how do I apply this to my life would be a trivialization of the point of this study. If an Eskimo wins a vacation to a sunny place, he doesn't arrive in his hotel room, step out onto the balcony, and wonder how to apply that to his life. He just enjoys it. He just basks. And I think that's the invitation that you're being invited to. Not maybe necessarily, how do I apply this into my life? But simply to let these truths about the heart of God soak into your resistant heart that portrays an image of God that is more like you than it is like God. And say, could this really be true of the heart of God? That when I fail, when I suffer, when I sin, that rather than being repulsed by me, God's heart is actually drawn toward me. And that rather than standing there with his arms folded, condescendingly at me, there is this incredible empathy that flows from the very heart of Jesus that says, I know personally exactly what you're going through because I've gone through it myself. And so he can deal gently with our failure and our struggle. Let's pray. 